morning, if you have your Bible with you, I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, we're going to be looking at several verses starting in verse 18. But if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. And as you're turning there, I'll kind of set up where we're going. We're starting a brand new series in a brand new year. And uh, we're taking the very first few weeks of 2020, and we're asking some questions. Hopefully, you've been doing that personally. You've just asked some introspective questions about goals and and things that you wanted to achieve last year, and you're thinking forward. But here's the, the, the framework of the question I want to ask. When we strip away everything else all around the trappings of religion, all of the things that we do, the programs, the buildings, the budgets, all of those things, what is at the core of who we are and what we're about and where we're going as a church and as a family and as an individual believer? What is your life really all about? And as you're turning there, I want to begin with a simple question for you. What comes to mind when I say the word Christian? What comes to mind when you think about a Christian? I would venture a guess that there are a lot of different pictures mentally right now that are being sought out or thought through. In fact, let me play a little word association game with you. You stick with me. I want to give you a word and and then you begin to give me what comes to mind. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to visualize, picture some images. What what comes to mind when you think of a Bernie Sanders supporter? I, no, no commentary. Just All right. What comes to mind when you think of a Donald Trump supporter? What comes to mind when you think of a CrossFit fanatic? Some of you know what CrossFit's all about. All right, let's do generations. What comes to mind when you picture a millennial? All right, what comes to mind when you picture a baby boomer? Different people in this room have got different perspectives and perceptions about all of those things. And odds are every single one of you had an association, whether good or bad, attached to every one of those people that I just described. Odds are you associate that word with characteristics as well. The broader culture informs our impressions. The media kind of tells you some things. But I want to go back to my first question. What comes to mind when I say the word Christian? If I asked 10 people, I would probably get nine different responses, at least here in America and certainly here in Hattiesburg. If you and I stopped people on the streets of Hattiesburg and said, are you a Christian? Some would say, yes, absolutely. Some would say, well, what do you mean? If I asked somebody here on the streets of Hattiesburg, are you a Christian? They would say, uh, yes, but, or no, but. They, they might say, well, Yes, but I'm not like, and then they fill in the blank with somebody that they've associated Christianity with. Some of you would say, at some point in your life, you became a Christian, right? I mean, you you would look back over your life, and and if that's how you would answer it, there's probably some time in your life when you prayed a prayer, or you were baptized, or you went through some motion, maybe it was a confirmation class, if that was your tradition. Others would say, probably in this room, well, I've always been a Christian. I come from a Christian family. 
and, and I was born a Christian. And there are some of you that even here today would say, no, I am absolutely not a Christian. Maybe you're here because somebody brought you here, your family encouraged you to be here, or, or you had no choice, they just said, get in the car. But, but you would say, I'm not a Christian. Well, I want us today and these few, first few weeks of 2020 to ask and answer some questions about what at the core does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And what are we as a church actually about? And so in, in just a moment from Matthew chapter 4, we'll look at those things. But recently in a television interview, I saw one man that said this. I want you to see this definition. He said Christians are judgmental, homophobic, homophobic moralists who think that they're the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everybody else is going to hell. If you believe that way, don't say amen right here, right now. But there are different perspectives, and I, I hope that I would show you something like that because some of you have warm, fuzzy, happy, good feelings when I say the word Christian because it's been a part of your faith tradition in your family, but you have no clue that there are people outside the walls of this church that think horrible things about Christians. And some of it is self-inflicted. We've brought it on ourselves in the way that we have or have not acted. All I'm saying is we, we need to just focus our minds to, to think about this. Now I want to give you something that's kind of strange. The very first Christians didn't even call themselves Christians. The very first followers of Jesus didn't use that phrase. The phrase actually meant little Christ and it was derogatory. It was, a, it was a, a, an epitaph, if you will, toward them, those little Christ, those Christ followers. And, and it was used in a very negative way by people outside of the Jewish community that would point. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, it says it was at Antioch that the believers, the disciples, were first called Christians. It was passive. It was used toward them, not by them. And it was so derogatory, they wouldn't call themselves that. But you say, Pastor, what did they call themselves? Well, it's right there in that same passage. Stay in Matthew, but in, in Acts chapter 11, it says, And the disciples and the believers, if you will, were first at Antioch called Christians. They called themselves disciples. I want you to see this. The word Christian is only used three times in the Bible. And yet the word disciple is used almost 300 times. Over and over again, they called themselves disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus. And I think it's important for us to see this. In fact, I want to suggest to you something that I, I read this week. I want you to see this. I want to suggest to you that changing the primary word that we use to describe ourselves, maybe in that we have lost clarity that the word disciple actually conveyed about what a follower of Jesus really is. When we take on the world's outside picture and, and just say, well, those little Christ, maybe we've lost something about what it actually means. And so if you're wondering where this is heading, look back this way. Some of you are saying, I've been a part of this church for a long time, and I think my pastor is about to, on the first Sunday of 2020, say we're going to stop calling ourselves Christians, and we're going to vote on that, and we're going to demand that we can. No, that's not where I'm going at all. This church has been here 113 years, and you say, well, he's not going to change that in a day. I am a Christian, right, Pastor? Well, yes. But I think it would be healthy for you to ask yourself, what does it mean to be a Christian? 
What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? I mean, you, you say, Pastor, that's just kind of weird for us to, to think about not using this term. But, but disciple is so much clearer. In, in fact, one, one commentator said it's terrifyingly clear about what you actually become when you chose to believe in Jesus. And I want to go back and try to get at the heart of what it meant to be a disciple. Because I think this, our use of the term Christian today obscures the fact that a lot of people who call themselves Christians are actually not, say that last word with me, disciples. Let me say that again. Our use of the term Christian is just a label. It's just a box that we check on some demographic study. You go to the hospital and they ask you your name and your social security number and your address and they certainly want your credit card number for a copay, but then they'll say, what is your religious preference, if any? And you say, well, I'm a Christian. And our use of that word perhaps has watered down the clarity that you and I need to be honest about. There are a lot of people in this room and in churches just like this all across our country who call themselves Christians, but they're not actually disciples. They're not following Jesus. They've taken the name, but they've not taken up the function. And so in Matthew 4, we're going to see that. Let's look together at this. This term is so much clearer. My hope is that you'll get a glimpse of what a disciple was and how Christians saw themselves. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water. For they fished for a living. They were fishermen. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. It, in other translations, I will make you to become fishers of men. And they left their nets at once and they followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. And they immediately followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. Now, I just want to go on record and say, when I was a kid, this story was weird to me. We had a flannel graph at South 28th Avenue Baptist Church, and my Sunday school teacher slapped up pictures of boats and nets and fishermen and Jesus, and he came walking along in a white flowing robe and a Miss America-looking sash, and he said, follow me, and they just dropped everything they were doing. They'd not met him, they didn't know him, and they just followed him, and I said, that's weird. As an adult, maybe some of you won't admit it, but you're thinking in the back of your mind, yeah, that is kind of weird. But as we get some historical background, I think you'll begin to see some things about this notion of why they would actually follow him, and it ties into this idea of what it means to be a disciple. So I want us to look at this together, and I want to I, I do this with a great fear and trembling of being a historical nerd for just a minute. So I'm going to nerd out if you'll let me. But I want to give you a little background. All Hebrew boys, when they were five years old, went to Torah school. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And these little five-year-old rambunctious boys were herded up and they would gather together and they would begin to learn in a formal way in training the Old Testament law. It started with a beautiful ceremony. Check this out. They would take all of these little rambunctious, bright-eyed, 
five-year-old boys, and they would give them a great big squirt of honey right on their tongue. And they had probably, because many of them were poor, had never tasted sweetness like that. And as their senses came to life, the rabbi would speak a prayer of blessing that was something like this. May the word of God be as sweet to your lips as honey from the honeycomb. And he would ask God to bless their studies. And these little boys, eager now to learn and grow, it was an honored thing to become a rabbi. They looked up to the rabbis. They were learned and wise. And every one of them wanted to be a rabbi. Obviously, not all of them were cut out for that work. At five, they began to memorize the first five books of the Bible. By the time they were 12, the ones that had succeeded in that task and other learning continued, but that was sort of a cut, if you will. And those that were 12 come to that age of of adulthood, and they would go back to their father's trade, or they would go back and be a part of their family business. They might be a shepherd or a stonemason or a carpenter, but they would not be in rabbinical training anymore. They're not set to be rabbis. These little boys that had come would start this process of being what we would call Talmud. Let me put this word up here. Talmud simply means disciple. Everybody say Talmud with me. Talmud. Here's what happened. A rabbi that you admired now from the age of 12 to 17, you're studying more deeply. You would study the rest of the Old Testament all the way through Malachi, and you would begin to pour yourself into it. And if you wanted to go on with your religious studies, you would go to a disciple, uh, excuse me, a rabbi, and you would, in essence, ask to be Talmud. You would ask to be his disciple. You would sit at his feet, and he would question you, and he would question all of those that would be his Talmudim. That's the plural of it. And the Talmudim, the disciples of that rabbi, would be chosen by that rabbi, and the others would go away. They would go back to their work. They would go back to their lives and livelihood. But the rabbis were able to be very selective. Why? Because being a religious leader was a great uh, aspired possible job these little boys didn't dream of being basketball stars they didn't dream of being rock stars that wasn't a part of the culture they dreamed of being rabbis they wanted to be great learned religious teachers they feared Yahweh and it was so ingrained in the culture pastor why are you giving us all of this lesson well the most talented boys then become the Talmudim that's the plural for Talmud And they had been chosen by these rabbis because the rabbis would would pick those that they felt like could do what they were doing. You see, a disciple, when he is fully mature, is like his teacher. Luke 6.40 says that. He becomes like his master. And for several years, these Talmudim would follow around the rabbis. They would learn their mannerisms. They would answer questions in the way that their master would, their rabbi would. And there was a beautiful phrase. Let me give this to you. They would learn how to respond to situations. And the highest compliment that could be given was this. The dust of your rabbi is all over you. The dust of your rabbi is all over you. What they were saying is, what your rabbi is stepping in has splashed all over you. And every part of his life is becoming a part of your life. And you are so deeply connected to him that there is a a great and glorious picture that you are becoming like him. You're becoming a rabbi, ultimately, 
a teacher. Now, th that's how closely you followed him. Everything your rabbi does, you do. You got covered with his thought, covered with his mindset. There's one more thing here that I want to give you. Again, I, I told you we're kind of off the trail. We're going to shoot the rabbit and get back on in a minute. Hope I hadn't lost you yet. There was a thing that was very, very important. A rabbi needed authority. And that authority was one Hebrew word. And the word is, I, I have a hard time with, but it was shmima. Everybody, that's a fun word to say. Shmima, say it. I, some of you just spit on somebody that's in front of you. Apologize to them later. Say the word again. Shmima. It means authority. And there were rabbis that had authority. There were rare kinds of rabbis. There's only a dozen or so that we know. We know of Gamaliel. We know of Hillel, there are others that some followed this rabbi, some, those are rabbis that have authority. And, and I want you to look this way with me. It's not just that they were really smart and taught well, there was a mystical sense that they had either performed miracles or that in some way they could speak on behalf of God. God could give new prophetic revelation through these Shmima rabbis, these rabbis with authority, the authoritative ones. And so if there was a rabbi like that, then they were certainly the ones that you would want to follow. To be regarded as one of them was one of the highest honors. Now, back to Matthew chapter 4. Here comes Jesus, and he's walking along the seashore, and he finds these fishermen, and he tells them, come, follow me. This is Jesus who taught with Shmima. He taught with authority. In fact, we found him at age 12 correcting the rabbis in the temple. Just before this, if you backed up a little bit, he is with John the Baptist. We know about John the Baptist. Jesus said that there is no greater man ever born of a woman. That would include all of us. Everybody, he said he's the top notch. He is the greatest of preachers. He, he pointed to him. And when John the Baptist, who had followers coming to him and said, he is a learned rabbi with Shmima, they wanted to be baptized by John. And when John saw Jesus, he said, there's one coming, and I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And when he came over the hill, I can hear John's voice begin to tremble, but with authority and shmima, with power, say, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John, who they revered, points to Jesus and in essence bows down and says, You think I've got authority? Look at him. So imagine you've gone to Torah school at 5, you didn't make the cut by 12, and you went back to fishing with your father. Or you'd made it all the way to 17 and you're getting closer, but they did not choose you. Gamaliel or some other great Shmima rabbi said, I'm not going to choose you, but I'm going to choose you. And you went basically in shame at some levels back to your family business. And all of a sudden, this rabbi who would speak with incredible authority comes walking by and he says, you and you and you follow me. It was not a, oh, should we go, should we stay? They dropped everything and took off. They left their boat. They left their nets. They left their father. We're going to see all of those things. But here, this powerful picture ought to come to bear for us. I mean, you think about this powerful picture. Few things that we notice about being a disciple right here from this chapter is so unique. 
And one is that Jesus skipped over all of the A players and went straight for the B team. He didn't go to Gamaliel or some other rabbi and say, I'm going to take the best and the brightest you've got. He went and found fishermen that had already flunked out of Torah school, if you will. Simon Peter and Andrew or fishermen and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, had not made the cut. The fact that they're fishing, the fact that they're fishermen tells you that they've not made it. They're part of the B team. And ladies and gentlemen, before we go any further you need to see that you need to see when Jesus assembled his force by choice to transform the world he used common ordinary b-teamers a few things I want you to see this morning number one he doesn't choose the best he chooses the willing he doesn't choose the best he chooses the willing this is powerful John MacArthur explains it this way. Listen to these words as you hopefully are filling in those blanks. In choosing his disciples, Jesus skipped over the wisdom of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. Uh, The great and powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar, the great ruler. He chose men to be his Talmudin, his disciples, so ordinary that it was comical. Think about this. Not a single rabbi, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler. Half of them were fishermen. One was essentially an IRS agent, and one of them was a former terrorist. He chose the B team because his work in this world would not come from their abilities for him, but their availability to him. Let me say it this way, and I'll put it on the screen. Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent apart from him. Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you think, well, I'm not smart enough, I don't sing well enough, I'm not strong enough, fast enough, I, I don't know the Bible well enough to be used of God, and all of that is nonsense. These are the ones that have flunked out in that area, and Jesus said, you're exactly the one that I want. He doesn't choose the best, he chooses the willing. It is so overplayed as a statement, but it's so true. God doesn't want your ability. He wants your availability. You give God what you have, and he'll use it miraculously. He'll take five loaves and two fish from a little boy, and he will give to the masses food to eat. Not that that little boy said, oh, I have the money and the resource to buy food. No, I'll just give you what I have, and Jesus will multiply and use it. And all of us need to consider that. All of us need to think about that. John the Baptist was Jesus' favorite preacher of all time, and he points to Jesus and says, this is the rabbi with authority. It's interesting to me. Jesus said these words. Greater man has never been born of woman but John the Baptist, but I tell you this, that the least in my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. Now, statistically... Somebody in this room has to be, from our church's standpoint, the least in the kingdom, right? I mean, there's some, there's some people here that know the Lord, love the Lord, live for the Lord, but there's some of you, mm, I'm, not, I'm not looking at anybody, don't you point at anybody, but there are some people here that don't pray as much as they should. And they don't know the Bible as well as they should. They're really not eloquent. They could never get up here and speak. And it means you probably have the least number of spiritual gifts. And there's somebody that I'm talking to right now, somebody in this room that is the least of the kingdom of God at Hardy Street Baptist Church. And I'm not being mean. That's just mathematically true, right? 
Would you agree with that? Yes or no? Come on, folks. Absolutely. One of you has the least talent, you're the least capable, the least eloquent, etc. And some of you are saying, Pastor, I think you're talking about me. And there's God up in heaven saying, yep, it's you. I mean, he's just confirming it in your heart. Those were the people that Jesus chose. Because they were willing. You don't have to have all the answers and all the Bible knowledge. You don't have to be the smartest or the most eloquent or sing the best. But if you'll show up for choir practice, Jesus will infuse you with glory and supernatural gift. And your worship might inspire somebody else and expand his kingdom. Because he said, John is the greatest that's ever been born of a woman. But the least of my kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And the least of his kingdom in this room. He doesn't pick the best. He picks the willing. I love that. We begin to think that he chooses them. You've got something that John didn't have. You've got the Holy Spirit living in you. He didn't didn't choose you because you're awesome. He chose you to make you awesome. I wrote these things down and just began to think about areas of our lives that we want to aspire to. He didn't choose you because you're a great mom or a great dad. He didn't choose you because you could be a great witness. He didn't choose you because you could be a great preacher. He chose you because he knew that you would be a willing vessel through which he could use, available in his hands, submitted to him. And the Holy Spirit in the mouth of one believer is more powerful than an army of the most eloquent preachers that could ever stand and preach the word. Do you understand that? For you and for me, he didn't choose you because of your talent, your ability, your gifts. No. He chooses the willing. Number two, I want you to see this. God chose us, not we him. That's important for us to see. He chose them. I explained the normal way all this went down a little while ago, that that if you were the best in your class, then you applied to be a rabbi, but the rabbi ultimately chose. He had confidence in in these Talmudim, and he expressed it by choosing them. That that would bring great encouragement to me. If the rabbi chose me, I may feel like a flawed individual. I may feel like I don't measure up, but I say, you know what, he saw something in me. Some of you have had a coach or a teacher in your life that believed in you, and because they believed in you, it inspired confidence. Would you agree with that? You probably are seeing their face right now. I think about people that have encouraged me. Well, Jesus chose them. He looks at James and John, who have failed out of of Torah school. He looks at Peter and Andrew, and he says, you, 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 follow me. And they said, he has authority. He, He is oozing with Shemimah. I want to go after him. Jesus starts the process and chooses us. He started the process and chose them even before they were looking. Do you understand what kind of confidence that can give? In the book of Ephesians, I love this. Paul describes this process that God chose us, and he's not trying to unravel the mysteries of predestination. What he's trying to tell you is this, is that God is going to see you through. If God chose you, he will stay with you because he is faithful. He's not trying to argue for or against Calvinism or predestination. What he's saying is, no, God chooses to use people, ordinary people, B-team people, those that the world would not call the best. But watch this, watch, watch. Jesus says this, I love this. 
you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you that you might bear fruit. Bearing fruit means you're going to win people to Jesus, and your fruit will last, it will continue. It's not just going to be a temporary thing, it's going to be permanent, real fruit, eternal fruit. You will give yourself in the service of your master as a Talmud, as a disciple, as a believer, as a follower. But if you just say, well, I'm a Christian, are you really following? Are you just saying, I want to be identified as Christ-like? You see, his main point is saying, I chose you and what I have planned for you and purpose for you, I'm going to pursue in you and I'm not going to let it drop. So when you lack confidence in yourself, you should put your confidence in the purposes of Jesus for you. There's where our confidence often begins to fail. You know, Peter walked on the water, and people said, well, his confidence in Jesus began to fail, and when it did, he sank. No, his confidence in himself. Jesus was still walking on the water just fine. You can have confidence in Jesus, but know that he has confidence in you, that he will work through you. We talk ourselves out of serving the Lord because we think we're not somehow adequate. And the truth of the matter is, you're not. But he doesn't choose the best, he chooses the willing. And he chooses you. You don't choose him. Well, as we move forward, I want you to see this. When Jesus chose you, he had a plan for your life, a plan for your marriage, a plan for your family, a plan to use you to bring fruit into the world, not based on your ability. Number three, I want you to see this. Our primary call is to be with him. Notice exactly what Jesus said. Come, follow me. It's pretty simple. You come and be with me. He didn't tell them where they were going. I love that. He didn't give them an assignment that he had for them. He said, you follow me. I'm going, you come too. And to spend time with him means that you ultimately get to know him. See, think about this. Your ultimate and primary calling is not to do something for God. It's to become something in God. For him to become something in you. And to to, to get to know him, you've, you've ultimately got to know his word. You need to be saturated with every word that comes out of his mouth. And I don't have a long time to spend right here, but let me just say this. As a church family, we are dedicated to giving you that opportunity. We do small group Bible studies on Sunday morning, special Bible studies at various times of the week. We have Wednesday services at 10.30 in the morning, or 11 o'clock in the morning, and then we have a service on Wednesday night. There are opportunities for you to get to know the Word of God. We've put reading lists together. We've put chronological studies together. We want you to read the Word of God, memorize the Word of God, grow in the Word of God, so that you can become all that He wants you to become. You can be with Him. That's the calling. A disciple's calling is to be with his rabbi and to become like his rabbi. Does that make sense? Yes or no? You guys are awfully quiet this morning. I hope that you're tracking along with me. Now, let me be real with you for a second. If you want the dust of your rabbi to be all over you, you're going to be more than just a Christian in name only. You've got to become... Talmud, a disciple, a follower, a, a believer, one who is a student. 
we give you weekly messages in small groups to help you with that. But I want you to get into the Word of God. You're going to have to let the Word of God get into you. When life begins to cut you, you need to bleed God's Word. When life begins to press in on you, you need to ooze God's Word. You cannot know Jesus more than you know His Word. Do you want the dust of your rabbi to be all over you? Then learn His Word. This church has staked its claim. We will be a people of the book. The Word of God will be central in all that we do. Number four, to follow Him, we see that you had to leave all. You had to leave all. What did they leave? It says in verse 22, immediately they left their boat and their father. Why do you think the author here, Matthew, chose those two things? to take? I mean, they left their nets, they left their home, their place. It said they left their boat and their father. Their boat is their income, it's their identity, it's their security, it's their job. And their father was the most significant relationship in their life. And what it's saying ultimately is your career and your relationships take secondary nature to following after your rabbi. If you're going to follow Jesus, then everything else must go away. There is no second place of priority. He becomes preeminent in all things to you. I have a friend who lives in Southeast Asia. He was Hindu, very devout Hindu from a very high caste. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. I was there for his baptism in the mountains of North India. It was an amazing time. His father said, you are dead to me. While we were there, his father offered a huge sum of money and said, if you'll renounce Christ, you can come back into the family as a son. And he said, I trust Jesus. I'm following him. Most of you will never have to give up career or never have to give up relationships. Some of you have. Some of you have have lost relationships because you followed Christ. Some of you may, though, in the future. I've seen this happen time and time again. We have not developed the culture in this church that I long to see. But in other churches that I've been a part of, I've watched families sell houses and move across the country so they can be a part of a church plant. I pray that day happens. I pray that some of you would say, you know what, I'm not going to take this career path of advancement because I'm following Jesus and Jesus is telling me to go here. Uh, there are college students and, and your parents may like may not like me saying this but what would it look like after you graduate if you gave a year or a two with our international mission board and you said I'll serve cross-culturally somewhere for the advancement of the gospel because Jesus is calling me to go there high school students and middle school students it may cost you to follow Jesus but I can promise you it's worth anything and everything you would ever give up to gain the dust of the rabbi being all over you Oh, that we as a church would really peel this back and say, we're not just going to play church anymore. We're not just going to be Christians in name only, but we are going to follow our rabbi step by step, knowing that he chose us not because of our abilities, but because of our availability, that we were willing, and he chose us, which gives us confidence, but his calling is for us to move forward, and that means we leave everything else behind. As I think about this whole process, I I really want to get to where I'm going because there's application that I want to give you. Number five, he commands us to reproduce spiritually. He, He commands us to spiritually reproduce ourselves. Follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. I will teach you how to fish for people. I will teach you how to uh, reproduce yourself. 
Jesus says, if this is not a part of what you do, then you're really not my disciple. Hello. Let me say that again. It is according to Jesus that all of us will reproduce spiritually. And basically we can say with confidence, Jesus is saying, if this is not a part of who you are, then you're not a part of him. Oh, pastor, you're just over speaking and saying dramatic things like that. I mean, you're, you're prone to do that. Let me call your bluff. John chapter 15, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And watch this, watch. And in so doing, prove to be my disciples. If you're not bearing spiritual fruit, you're not a disciple of Jesus. You can call yourself a Christian, you can call yourself a member of a church, you can say, I'm of Judeo-Christian values and family, but you're not following Jesus if you're not reproducing spiritually. Hardy Street Baptist Church, you need to know this, the great commission that was given was given to all of us. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe or obey everything that I have commanded. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to nerd out one more time, not historically, but grammatically. Baptizing and teaching and going, those are participles. The only verb in there is one unique combination word. And in English, it would really say this, disciplize. Make disciples. He says, as you are going, as you are baptizing and teaching and all those things, go make disciples. Look again on your bulletin. What is the center point of our mission? We've said we're a family of faith right here in the heart of Hattiesburg, and our aim is to make disciples among our neighbors, the nations, and the coming next generation. Making disciples. And if you're not making disciples, then you're not a disciple. Hear me. I can't be more clearly, and some of you maybe have already kind of started thinking about your goals for this year, and you've evaluated your life, and you want to learn Spanish and save money and lose weight, but how about this? Why don't you say, I want this year to follow Jesus. I want to be sure that I'm bearing fruit. I want to be sure that I'm leading my children and my grandchildren in the right direction. I want to be sure that I'm a part of a church that leads me forward to follow after him. I want the dust of my rabbi all over me. For he's the only rabbi with the shmima, the authority to save your soul and to take you to heaven. The only one. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? We have a lot of ministries in this church. We have a lot of things going on. But every ministry grows out of making disciples. That's the core of what we do. I, I have challenged and encouraged Joe Gunter and Scott Alexander and Wes Dykes, all of our pastoral leadership team, and those that work with our preschoolers and children and youth to focus in everything that we do. We ought to show love and kindness, yes. We ought to meet needs where we can, yes. But we better be making disciples. Some of you are moved by suffering. I see this in this millennial generation and in the, the college students today. You're moved by suffering of the refugee and the plight of people around the world, and that's great. But the greatest suffering of all is eternal suffering. And if you're not speaking life and eternal life into the lives of people who are lost and dying, if we're not rescuing the perishing, what are we doing? 
We can feed and clothe and keep comfortable people that are on their way to hell. That's just real. And Jesus, think about that, walks along and says, hey, you, 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 follow me. And he's saying that this morning. He's saying, is there anybody at Hardy Street Baptist Church that will stop calling themselves a Christian and not act like me or do the things that I tell them to do or obey me? Are there some there that would say on January uh, the 5th of 2020, I had to think through that because I already told you that a Saturday night, uh, the Sunday night concert is going to be on Saturday night because I gave you the wrong date. That's my one mistake for the year, by the way. I'm done. No more. What would it look like if you said on this first corporate gathering of worship in 2020, I'm going to stand and say, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll follow you. We as a church family and as a staff and leadership, we want to help you in that. So let me take this forward. Jesus summarized his ministry this way. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If that's the mission statement of Jesus, that ought to be the mission statement of Scott. Scott, are you seeking to see the lost saved? You put your name in there, are you? I hate to break it to you. His plan for the Pine Belt is not for this pulpit to get louder. His plan for the Pine Belt, to reach the Pine Belt, is not for the pulpits of this city to get louder. His plan's not even for a great and glorious Easter service. It's not a singing Christmas tree. It's not a living nativity. It's not a vacation Bible school. His plan is that individual men and women would be a part of something. You see, his plan is not something. His plan is someone. And his plan is you. God wants to use you and me to reach the nations for his glory. He wants us to be his method. He wants to use us to share. He wants you to become, by God's grace, a reproducing Christian this year. A town member, a disciple. Sometimes it means studying the Bible together, and we're going to introduce a lot of you to tools to do this. Disciple making is simply teaching somebody else how to follow Jesus like you're following Jesus. I want to give you three quick things and we're done. Here are the three things I'm asking you to consider doing. Number one, you need to get engaged in church. You need to get engaged in church. And I don't mean just come on Sunday mornings. I mean you need to plug into a small group Bible study. Our small group this morning started a chronological study of the New Testament. We're going to walk through the life of Jesus and the early church. Other classes are teaching various life skills and training. We're going to be doing Wednesday night classes that will help you as a parent, as a grandparent, to help you as a disciple. We've got a class that's, we've got a group of people that are learning Greek right now. We've got the, the Monday night class perspectives that's coming. That'd be a great way to start. I've seen people that have gone through perspectives and sold houses and quit jobs and left businesses and moved to the other side of the globe because their rabbi was calling them. You see, if you're going to follow Jesus, you let up. The control, you give him the, the control. Get engaged. Some of you have never been to Sunday school. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. We want you to begin to put all of this into practice, to move from being a spectator to being a disciple. An another thing you can do, number two, is this. Don't just get engaged in church. Skip over where I think I got them out of order. It's to get equipped through the church. Begin to learn to grow. We are putting together tools that will help you, not just sermons, but tools. And we want you to get engaged and then get equipped. And number three, and this is the most important thing, everybody look this way. 
I want you to identify one. One person in your life that is far from God. One person in your life, it may be a neighbor, a classmate. I'm not talking about your kids or your grandkids. You're, you've got the obligation and responsibility to train them up. But is there one person, a neighbor, a, a friend, a co-worker who is far from God? And you identify them prayerfully. Ask God, who is my one? This year, we're going to focus on this idea of who's your one. Everybody say, who's your one? And ask yourself, who's my one? Ask yourself, God, who is it that you want me to reach? There's 300 people or so in our room today. What would it look like if there were 600 a year from now? Because we said, I will reach one. And we're going to train you and equip you. We're going to focus on evangelism at higher levels. We're going to give you opportunities. We're going to give you invite cards. In fact, I don't have this for the screen because I'll share it next week. But I'll just share this. If you go to hardysbc.net slash who. There are amazing templates there for sending somebody uh, an email, writing them a handwritten card, just inviting them to church. You see, it may be nothing more than inviting somebody to church first, and then it gives you the opportunity to invite them to Christ. I, I have found in my life there are three not statements that people make all the time. They say, well, I was not expecting that, or I was not prepared for this, or I hear people that say this all the time, well, I'm not from here. You ever met that person? We have college students from all around the globe that come to Hattiesburg, and I meet them. Maybe they're working in a restaurant as a waiter or a waitress, or I just meet them out and about, and they go, I'm not from here. Here's how you answer. All three of those knots ought to be a cue for you to say, how can I pray for you? And I would love for you to come to my church. It's not rocket science. Loving people, but being intentional and just reaching out and saying, how can I pray for you? Somebody says, I was not prepared for this. Maybe they lost a loved one. Maybe they're going through a difficult season, and they say, I was not ready for this, or I did not see this coming. How can I pray for you? Let me give you one more challenge. What would it look like if every person here made a conscious effort that this year you will have one unbeliever or one unbelieving family in your home at least once a month for the next 12 months? Can I be honest? I've had a ton of people from our church come to our house and eat and be a part of fellowship meals and times. I have not used my house as a gateway to make disciples like I need to. There are people that go to your gym. There are parents who are on your kid's soccer team or your grandkid's soccer team. You ought to just engage them, ask them how you can pray, and ask them to come over for a meal. Begin to earn the right to teach them how to follow Jesus like you're following Jesus. Does that make sense, yes or no? That's about halfway. Some of you have checked out and gone to lunch. I understand that. But somebody here is going to die on Wednesday. And somebody's going to say 2020 is the year that I quit playing the game of Christian and I become a disciple, a follower, walking after the footsteps of the master. And I'm not trying to induce guilt or say, i got to do more. No, Jesus said, I will free you because you follow me and my yoke. I love this. A yoke was all the teaching of that rabbi. And Jesus said, take upon you my, my yoke. Why? Because it's easy. It's light. My burden is not heavy. Others 
rabbis would say, you got to do this and this and this. And they had hundreds of checklist things to keep the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said, no, it's not about that. It's about loving God and loving people and serving them both well. Oh, that we would become a church of reproducing disciple-making. That we would plant churches that plant churches. Not just reach Christians that would reach Christians. What would it look like if our multiplied effort expanded the kingdom for the glory of God in 2020 and beyond? If we begin to see what God wants to do. I'll close here. How many of you know the name Mary Laura Boyette? A bunch of you do. Mary Laura was one of our ministry assistants. She sang in our church beautifully, sang at the the University of Mobile, been a part of worship here, those kinds of things. Mary Laura got in a car this week with a a friend and drove to Salmon, Idaho. She's going to live in Salmon for the next year, work with Mike Hawk. God is leading her there and has opened up the door through the, the International Mission Board for her to begin to prepare for service overseas. She had a, an incredibly bright career in several different options of music or entertainment or, or otherwise. And God opened the door and said, no, this is what I want to do. And she said, yes. It, it can be scary to let go of the reins of your life. But there's no greater place in the world to be. Now, I'll, I'll invite our musicians up. I'm done. We're going to have a a hymn of invitation. So if they make their way, as we sing, if you're willing to say, I I hear the voice of the rabbi. I I hear Jesus calling me forward. You may not know where it is or what it is. That's okay. They didn't either. They left their career. They left their relationships. They dropped their nets and they followed. Some of you today may have walked into this place, maybe for the very first time, and you say, God, you have shown me that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Maybe you need to come and say, I want to join Hardy Street Baptist Church today, and I want to get on with this business of following him. Maybe you need to be saved today. Maybe you need to trust him. The gospel is clear. You couldn't save yourself, but Jesus died in your place to offer eternal life through his resurrection. We'll have encouragers here in just a moment that are standing at the front. Walk down the aisle as we're singing. It's a simple process. They're not going to embarrass you. They won't do anything to to harm you in any way. They want to help you. And you take them by the hand. They'll pray with you and answer whatever questions you have and, and love on you. But you come. Let God have his way in whatever it is that he's calling you to do. Let's stand together. Our encouragers are here.